Hi, guten Morgen, America. America is strong. America is strong. Yeah, a little too strong, motherfuckers. Good morning. How's your Deutsche? Sprechen Sie Deutsch yet? America? Ha 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 ha. Ha Yeah. Welcome back to the Christopher Governator Show. And this morning, it's a nice morning. Got a chicken standing on my shoulder. Flew, he flew and said to what he likes to, he likes me. My chicken likes me and he's sitting on my shoulder. Anyway, so I just found Lincoln Project. Um, the 2022 midterm elections, 100 days away. This is uh, August 1st, part one. So it's less, it's like less than like 85 days now, something like that. Uh, so you guys ready to dominate? Okay, get your ass out there, Democrats. At least mail in your ballots. Everybody mail in your fucking ballots. And uh, vote Democrat up and down ballot. Or no good Republicans. No such thing as a good Republican. Anyway, let's hear this thing. Hey everybody, it's Reed. Before we get started, I have to say thank you. Thank you to every one of you out there. Not only have we passed 2 million downloads for July, but we've passed 22 million downloads since we started last February. I cannot say thank you enough, but I need to ask you one more favor. Share the podcast with your friends, your family, anybody who you think is interested and dedicated to preserving American democracy. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all you do. And now, that's me. I cover legal AF, Lincoln Project, Midas Touch, Mary L. Trump, Michael Cohen, Maya Copa, Bulwark Podcast. Back to the Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Marie Galen. Today, I'm joined by Trey Beals. Senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and president of Viking Strategies LLC, a Washington D.C. based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigby, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. It's good to be on. And also back with us today is Jeff Timmer, another senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. Jeff, welcome back. I'm glad to be back, Reed. So, gents, the. Whoa! What the hell was that? Hey everybody, it's Reed. Before we back, I think in 2002, 2004, something like that. 2004, I cannot say thank you enough, but I need to ask you one more favor. Share the podcast with your friends. I'm doing that, man. Anybody who you think is interested in dedicated to preserving lap. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all you do. You're welcome. Now, now thank you for all you do, man. Thank you, Project Rocks. It's only good Republicans. So I have to correct welcome myself. Welcome back to the Lincoln Project. I'm Lincoln Project are the good Republicans. Today, I'm joined by Trey Beals, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and president of Viking Strategies, LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigby, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. It's good to be on. And also back with us today is Jeff Timmer, another senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. Jeff, welcome back. I'm glad to be back, Reed. 
So, gents, the last time I had both of you on, we did a deep dive on the key 2022 midterm elections, and it wound up being a barn burner, a two-part mega episode, and I have to say, <laughs> the feedback on it was incredible. So I want to bring you both back together for an update on where we are in the lead-up to the midterms, the existential threats we face, the remaining primaries, and the other key races that pose the biggest threat to our nation's democracy. So let's get into it. Let's start with what we would call the existential threat races, places like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. You know, as we're recording this, the Michigan primary will be Tuesday, August 2nd. So, Trigby, why don't you lead us off from your home state of Wisconsin, and then Jeff, tell us about Michigan, and then we can powwow on Pennsylvania. So in Wisconsin, you know, the question becomes, who's Tony Evers going to face? Tony Evers be the nominee he's running for re-election polls have consistently showed him hovering right around 46 47 percent which is right about where his job approval ratings are the two most likely outcomes are either tim michaels who's a businessman a road builder he is the guy with trump's endorsement interestingly and in some ways he kind of has more of the traditional establishment of the republican party behind him because he's been a big money donor he ran for the u.s senate back i think in 2002 2004 something like that i mean that's 20 years ago can't these guys find something else to do yeah i mean i think michaels has been a guy who's always wanted to run he's being snagged a little bit based on the fact that as you'll recall back 2002 2004 marriage equality and gay marriage was a big issue he was pretty adamantly against it he is holding with that position which actually now puts him in a place of incongruence with ron johnson who's trying to be the 60th senator supporting it the other possibility is rebecca cleefleisch who's the lieutenant governor from scott walker's era she's a former television personality She has been running as sort of the establishment conservative from the Walker era. She campaigned hard to get Trump's endorsement, but Trump didn't go with her, in part because he was mad that at one point she at least kind of implied, which she's now backed off on, that Joe Biden won in the state. So we should just note, though, that even the quote-unquote establishment candidates for this race, the first guy you mentioned is anti-gay marriage, and this one, you know, hinted at the idea that the big lie was ridiculous and then had to go scurrying back. So really, the establishment, such as it is, is the rump. Establishment is all in on not talking about that Joe Biden won <laughs> and trying this balancing act between giving tacit support to the notion that the big lie is, in fact, true and that somehow... Perhaps even the state legislature could, after the elections, with Evers out of the way, recall the electors. But that's not a thing. Well, you're quoting Robin Voss, and we talked about that on the podcast the other day. Speaker of the State Assembly got a call from Donald Trump basically advocating for that because the state Supreme Court ruled that drop boxes were illegal. Trump is trying to say, well, see, I really did win Wisconsin because those votes shouldn't count. Of course, they don't know which votes were in drop boxes versus which ones weren't. But yeah, the state of Wisconsin and the Republican Party is really divided over that issue. And it's an existential threat because quite honestly, none of these guys or gals in Clay Fleisch's case are willing to commit to saying that they'll honor the result in 2020 or 2024 going forward. 
And then the other piece Election of Wisconsin should be, uh, important, and Timmer and I took this into account as we've been raiding races. You have a huge Senate race between Ron Johnson and whoever is the eventual nominee, most likely Mandela Barnes, who's the lieutenant governor, who is the lieutenant governor and is running as a proud progressive. Well, Ron Johnson is really working hard to moderate his position and appeal to, in part because he doesn't have a primary, right? So he's working hard in the Milwaukee suburbs to be the guy that's standing with marriage equality. He's walked back his position on abortion a little bit. He said he wants to be the 60th senator voting in favor of birth control. So Ron Johnson is really trying to move to that middle position. Well, Barnes has been running to the left of, for example, Tammy Baldwin. Right, and so this is another one of those interesting states, not unlike Pennsylvania or Georgia, where you have these candidates of the same party who represent different things to different voters, who probably, you know, if Mandela Barnes is in Eau Claire, right, then Tony Evers is going to try and be as close to Chicago as he can, right? Like, he's going to try and be as clear of him as he can. And I think that should be something that we were talking about was the idea that because Barnes is African-American, that somehow this would drive turnout among African-American votes in Milwaukee, but also for Evers, which I think, frankly, gives pretty short shrift to the concept that African-American voters don't have broader insight into what they're looking for in a candidate. I understand that there might be some additional enthusiasm based on that, but, you know, if you're going to be a Bernie Sanders progressive in a state like Wisconsin, I feel like that's an uphill climb. A Democrat has won Wisconsin, Russ Michael, basically winning two counties by an overwhelming margin, Dane and Milwaukee. But most of the time what happens is Dane and Milwaukee like in 2020, Dane and Milwaukee are one total, and they're offset by the Republican totals in the suburbs of Milwaukee and in the Fox River Valley, Green Bay. And then it's outstate that decides the election. In 2020, as you'll recall, the Lincoln Project went in hard along the Bannon line. You know, we dropped over a million dollars in the last couple of weeks, keeping suburban men primarily in those wow counties. Waukesha, Ozaki, and Washington, keeping them with Biden because Biden wasn't running as a far-left progressive socialist. He was running as a moderate center-left Democrat against Donald Trump, and those people had just had enough. So now you kind of have the inverse of this. You've got Barnes running as a progressive, Bernie Sanders progressive, endorsed by AOC and others to get through the primary, while Ron Johnson is basically, like Nixon used to suggest, running to the middle because he doesn't have a primary. And that's all about holding those voters. If Johnson holds, in this case, it's primarily female voters in those wild counties, if he can hold them, he has a real shot at getting reelected, even though more than half of Wisconsin voters don't like him. Right. So let's move next door, Jeff, and talk a little bit about Michigan. So the Michigan Republican Party has been, to call it a carnival and clown show, is a real insult to carnivals and clown shows <laughs> and to carnies themselves this year. And so now what's happening is we're finally coming up on the, the Republican primary for governor. And so there were initially 10 people running in that race. Five of them got thrown out because they didn't have the right ballot qualifications. And so now we have five people left who are all just beating the heck out of each other as Gretchen Whitmer has been governing, I think, but also running a pretty good race. So how do you see the Wolverine state or the Spartan state, as it were? 
First of all, Michigan is unique among the existential states in that it only has a governor's race. It doesn't have a corresponding U.S. Senate race. So the governor's race is the big fight on the scorecard here. And uh, as you mentioned, the field of contenders has shrunk from 10 candidates that no one knows or gives a shit about to now only five candidates that no one knows or gives a shit about. And it's astounding the lack of money and the lack of activity that has been spent in this primary. We've got one candidate who's self-funding to the tune of $10 million. He hasn't spent any more than half of that, but the rest of the field combined hasn't even come close to matching $5 million. So we have the field of gubernatorial candidates who are spending less than the competitive congressional would typically spend. And so Bad the amount dogs. of attention, the amount of enthusiasm seems quite low. And so as we go into these last few days of the five candidates, there are four who have any path whatsoever to possibly winning. And really none there. of those four have consistently polled Get above the lofty number of 20%. Naughty. Bad dog. So really undecided continues to be more than a third of the vote, more than 40% of the vote in some surveys that have been public. And so it's as, really as clear as mud, to use the old cliche, as we go into Tuesday as to what's going to happen. There are two candidates, Tudor Dixon, former right-wing commentator on some right of OANN network out there, former vampire porn actress, uh, this old story for another day, but she has garnered what would be the vestiges of the leadership class, the institutional support, chambers of commerce, right to life, those traditional groups. The DeVos family is pouring money to the extent, uh, I guess it's all relative, into a super PAC supporting her, but combined they've only pumped in about two and a half million dollars, which is really not a lot of money. That's about a thousand gross ratings points of statewide TV. It's not a huge amount of money that's been put in there. But while Dixon has been very careful to suck up to Trump as publicly as she can, she's the only candidate whose name he's ever remembered and said aloud. And they have that playing in in ads, Donald Trump standing in Mar-a-Lago mentioning Tudor Dixon's name. I can't imagine why that is based on your description. Well, I was telling a reporter this earlier today. The thing that's so loud in this race is Donald Trump. As everybody loves to write the stories about, oh, Donald Trump's influence is waning, his hold on the Republican Party is loosening, all the evidence continues to point to the contrary. All the candidates are going out of their way, going through contortions to show how much like Donald Trump they are, how much of his America First agenda they'll implement, how much they believe in the big lie, and how much they want Donald Trump's support. There have been six or seven candidate debates that have been televised or broadcast on radio. There are hour-long affairs with everybody saying, I'm the most like Donald Trump. I love Donald Trump more than you do. You don't love Donald Trump enough. You're not willing to go to jail for Donald Trump like I am. Like, because one of the guys running actually was arrested by the FBI for being at the Capitol on January 6th. Right. He's actually looking at going to federal prison in support of Donald Trump. And he's using that as a cudgel against the other candidates saying they're not sufficiently mega enough. They weren't willing to put their own freedom on the line for Donald Trump. It is a cult, and this primary is evidence of the fact that what would have been abnormal just four years ago has become normal. And now somebody like Tudor Dixon 
is being painted as the establishment candidate. John Engler, the longtime Republican governor of Michigan, has endorsed Tudor Dixon. She is so far out. Ten-year-old is proudly said how she would force that child to have Get a team. your dog That's in your yard! ...outside the Republican mainstream, the historic Republican mainstream, but it has become normalized because everybody in this field is a friggin' kook, and it's just all Hello? of kookery. Hey, neighbor! The candidate will proudly proclaim you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. It always becomes that race to the bottom with extremists, right? Like, extremists constantly want to out-extreme each other. Model campaign for candidates in these other states to look to. She has in a very purple state one that Trump Trumpism has taken hold of and made far more competitive than it was in the days before Trump, the way he has shifted the political alignment within the state. She has remained above water on her job approval. She's remained above water and above 50% in ballot tests against candidates, against generic Republicans. She's kind of defied gravity. Michigan's a state where Joe Biden is, you know, maybe mid-30s at best, 40% on the job approval. Hey! So Biden's way Hello! Her. She's running well ahead. You need to get Biden. your dogs in your yard! Keep your gate closed! Her own identity independent of the national hey! identity. Get your and dogs in the gate! now been governor for four years. Fuck off! She's running ads touting the fact that she's signed hundreds of bipartisan bills into law. She's pushing a... Need to get your dogs in the gate! She's messages that you wouldn't typically identify with Democratic candidates because she has the luxury of no primary and she's got this, you know, shit show going outside. So she's been able to... You need to get your dogs in the gate! Even though get your dogs in the game for Republicans, they are so emotionally invested Hello? in feeding her, and pragmatically, they can't afford even with Hello? at the top of the ticket. They can't afford an implosion at the top of the ticket without feeling those Hello? where they do have some hey, person in the white truck. Tested congressional races. You need to close your gate. The legislature. Your dogs are terrorizing pedestrians. She's running, I think, the textbook campaign, one that I think Tony Evers in Wisconsin or Josh Shapiro or Katie Hobbs in Arizona, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, Doug Sisolak in Nevada should be looking to, you know, how has Gretchen Whitmer been able to separate herself from the generic democratic winds that are flowing nationally. You look at Black, who's Your dogs are terrorizing pedestrians! Keep your gates closed! Really, he's not out of that danger territory. He's at 43%. That's some sketchy territory. Hello! We're at 49 to 55 you could argue Please. that Michigan is a much more hello. purple state hello. even than hello, hello. So how has Gretchen Whitmer been able to do that? Your dogs She's are really terrorizing pedestrians. You need to, to keep your gates closed. Independent of the generic Democrat 
She has yeah, every time I come by, and my friends here, they, they, they uh, taste them like they're going to fight them. You need to keep your gates closed, measures. please. She really has never apologized or changed course. Despite any of their criticism, she's leaned into it and been rewarded by a majority of Michigan voters, including some Republicans making up that majority, who say Gretchen Whitmer's doing a good job. And, uh, you know, there's this shit show going on on the Republican side. And so... The test for the pro-democracy forces in Michigan and in other states is if you get a Gretchen Whitmer who's able to separate themselves, how can you translate that into success down ballot as you go into attorney general or secretary of state or congressional or legislative races? How do you keep that coalition together? That's something that Democrats haven't quite been able to figure out in most of these states yet. Jeff, you said one thing that MAGA has taken hold in Michigan and made it more competitive which I think most people would think, oh, well, if MAGA's taken hold, it would be less competitive. But the reason I want to bring that up is because in one of the key congressional districts there, I believe outside oh, of Grand Rapids, there's been a lot of news That's lately. Good. The Democrats, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is boosting of the two Republican candidates in that race. Peter Mayer, or Meyer, is the Republican incumbent, one of 10 Republican members of Congress to vote to impeach Donald Trump. And then there's a MAGA counterpart. And the DCCC, the Democrats, have been going out of their way to boost the MAGA candidate with the idea, okay, if we can beat Meyer, the more moderate, who's on paper tougher in the general, then we can get somebody who's more theoretically more beatable in November. One, my fear is that the Democrats are playing with fire. Two, I don't think that they're good enough as a political movement strategically to pull that off. But three, sometimes, Jeff, it feels like it's 2015 all over again. Oh, well, they're the crazier ones, so they can't win. As opposed to saying, like, well, you know, maybe we should leave well enough alone because, you know, we're getting involved in somebody else's chili here, and it very well could be that the MAGA guy wins. That is a very real risk. The DCCC is attacking Pete Meyer. And the Democrat Governors Association is up with a $2 million buy in the last week against Tudor Dixon on the Republican side. So they are also trying to sink her. They just see her as the potentially most competitive Republican against Whitmer. So both of those organizations, the DGA and the DCCC, have made the very partisan calculation that, look, you know, we're Democrats. We're not a pro-democracy organization. We're a pro-democratic organization. So they're looking at the Meyer Congressional District as one he won in an old district, a reforming district, that was plus three for Trump. His new district is plus nine for Biden. So it's a swing of 12 points. It's become a decidedly more Democratic district. And they've decided they're going all in. They think that the impeachment vote is enough capital likely for Meyer to probably lose that even against an underfunded mega opponent who's running a fairly shitty campaign he's probably still likely to win but they've made the calculation that they're going to assist that hopefully it doesn't turn out to bite them in the ass that this gibbs the mega candidate the election denier wins and then stuns the political world in november by holding that republican seat the same thing could happen where you know one of these crazies uh, the guy who got arrested brian kelly on the governor's race you're in soldado one of your favorites in the race the roided up chiropractor 
Yeah, these guys who are, you know, now they're not just MAGA, they're the ultra-MAGA candidates. That's how they set themselves apart. Where one of them wins and becomes governor. It sounds crazy. It's easy to look at these guys and say, oh, they're too crazy to win, except when they do. You've got these Doug Mastriano types who are running everywhere. Many of them are likely to win nominations in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Arizona, in Nevada. And... I don't think we can just say, oh, they won't win in November. They might win in some of these states. We might have Doug Mastriano or ultra-mega governors in some of these existential states as we head into 2024, and that's a very serious risk. The Democrats didn't ask us for advice in this one. Well, they rarely do. Yeah, I mean, it's hard enough when you're running a political party organization or a caucus organization to orchestrate primaries within your own party. That's been my experience over decades. I can't imagine the track record is going to be much better if you're trying to do it in the other side's primary. Look at how McConnell has kind of failed at that this cycle. It takes a very special politician to be able to pull it off in your own primary. And McConnell has in the past. Harry Reid was really good at it. You know, Claire McCaskill did a little bit of that. And Al D'Amato used to do it. But you're talking about pretty rare politicians who have pulled it off successfully. And I'm not sure the DGA of 2022 or the DCCC, no offense to them, are that. You know, as I was listening to Jeff talk about what Whitmer's doing, I was thinking back, and we're all old enough to remember when Tom Ridge and John Engler and Tommy Thompson and all these guys started getting elected. And they had Democratic state legislatures because all these states had been held by Democrats up through most of the 80s and into the early 90s. Those guys got elected governor. They stayed true to their core values, but they figured out ways to co-opt and bring them in. And if Democrats were smart, and it's why governors leading from states is a far better way to produce your bench than these national Washington guys. People like Ridge and Engler and Tommy, eventually they took over those state legislatures. And by being incremental and being smart, and doing things like Wimmer's doing with, I'm going to take the tax cut issue off the table, but I'm going to draw a line on the repeal of Roe in the state because that's a winner for me to have that fight with these Republicans, right? That's how you build sustainable long-term majorities. That is how Republicans did that, leading in through George W. Bush and taking over Congress and all the rest. And the truth of the matter is, you know, Donald Trump is an example of a Republican Party that got almost all of what they wanted. It's like Star Wars. The rebels became the empire, and then they completely overreached and went crazy. Yeah, the problem is, in that analogy, the Democrats fight like Ewoks. I mean, <laughs> but no, maybe that's, they that's are. The wrong, that's the wrong. <laughs> they fight like uh, Jar Jar Binks. First Stormtroopers or stormtroopers <laughs> can't shoot straight. But when you're nominating, when you think that the path is we're going to nominate the most progressive person that we possibly can in one of those states, right? Because Ron Johnson is an anathema, but it's kind of a center right state, and you give them the ability to co opt pieces of their coalition to have the coalition and the insanity. That's how you don't win in these places and build. And Whitmer is showing the way. It would be nice if Evers and Sisolak or Katie Hobbs and Shapiro, who want to become that, would take that lesson. Because the thing you didn't mention, Jeff, is, you know, Whitmer might flip. Is it the state senator or the state assembly? 
both. I mean, both are, are very real possibilities, uh, especially as they've got some very big primaries in a lot of key seats where Donald Trump has come in and endorsed candidates for the state legislature, where they're going to get these ultra mega folks winning yeah, in what would be very purple prison. legislative districts. They're going to have these horse paste eating urine drinking candidates as their standard bearer in seats that are these kind of high income, high education suburban districts where they're going to have these just knuckle dragging candidates against, you know, very generic Democrats. You know, people still are talking about red wave and the economic factors that are continuing to hinder Democrats, bolster Republicans. Yet in a state like Michigan, you're going to have Gretchen Whitmer likely the favorite for re-election all the way through the fall. She's likely to be re-elected. The Democrats are more than holding their own right now in the other statewide offices where they have incumbents, people like Alyssa Slotkin, Dan Kildee. They could pick up a seat in Michigan in that Grand Rapids seat if the MAGA guy wins. And you could see the Democrats flipping a chamber or getting both chambers for the first time in more than 40 years, which would be historic. Which is crazy, too, considering how, how important organized labor was there even 40 years ago. People who pay attention to the national politics, the uh, uh, presidential politics of Michigan, would be astounded at how red Michigan has been in Lansing over that time. And the state legislature has been dominated by Republicans going back to the 1980s. And I think that also speaks to a massive cultural divide between the two parties, both how they're seen by the outside and how they see themselves. Yeah, and you were saying what I had said earlier about Trump and MAGA's making Michigan more of a purple state than it had been prior to Trump. Part of that comes from the economic and education divide that drives Trumpism. The lower educated, working class, what would have been historic labor or one generation off from labor in kind of the older ring suburbs around Detroit and some of the other major industrial cities. Areas that I've been working campaigns in Michigan since the 80s and areas that I have no experience in because they've been so historically democratic are now areas that vote for Trump and where Republicans are competing in legislative seats because of that kind of dynamic, that class and education shift with realignment within the electorate. Now we have those more educated, higher income areas like around Grand Rapids or uh, Oakland County where Republicans used to dominate the old country club, Chamber of Commerce Republicans have now become behavioral Democrats for the most part. All right, so guys, let's continue our trip through the existential states and let's head south-southeast towards Pennsylvania. Obviously, the primary happened there a couple of months ago. In the Senate race, we've got John Fetterman versus Dr. Oz. John Fetterman, the latest survey, Trigby had him up nine. Fetterman, recovering from a stroke that he had just prior to the primary, has been off the road. But you can see this is where, you know, the difference in a good campaign and a bad campaign, which is his campaign is really a terrific group of people who, much like we did in 20, really understands the value of short form, punchy social media, keeping in your opponent's head and keeping them on their heels, making them flail around. That's what his social media, his Twitter feed has been doing. He and his wife have been doing, right? Like, you know, congratulations, Dr. Ross. Have a happy New Jersey day, right? Do you even know how to pump your own gas, right? Like, dear New Jersey governor, can you come get your guy? Like, he needs to come home, right? All of this stuff, which for a guy like Oz, who has probably sat in TV studios for the last 25 or 30 years, being the 
a number one guy, right, to now be belittled on a daily basis by somebody who probably Oz doesn't believe is qualified to hold his briefcase, I think is a fascinating trend. I think also it shows that Trump is important in primaries because without Trump, Oz isn't there, but it's not necessarily enough to fix a candidate's significant it's shortcomings, which right Oz now. clearly has. Fetterman is running, he isn't apologizing for who he is. He's not on the campaign trail, but he's running as who he is. And they are doing a good job with the New Jersey thing. I don't know if you guys saw that Stevie Van Zandt, Bruce Springsteen's guitarist, oh. you know, is what? just going after Oz about how great it would be to have somebody from New Jersey, uh, you know, like a third <laughs> senator and all this stuff. I'm sure before it's over, they'll probably have the boss offering to come in and do a New Jersey concert for him in Philly. <laughs> My favorite was Oz just can't win social media. He tries to get out there and he shows himself in a Philadelphia Eagles jersey, right? <laughs> So the Fetterman campaign comes back at him. Is that a New Jersey? Question mark. <laughs> it was just too easy for them. But they're so you're right. They're so good at it. And if I'm the National Democrats, I don't even want Fetterman to necessarily get back out on the campaign trail. He's doing just fine where he is right now. No, look, he's run. He's running the best front porch campaign since James Garfield. Right? Like, leave him there. In some ways, him running a front porch campaign against Oz probably is the best place that he can be. Although, I think the one thing that we should probably make sure that people understand, the reason we call these existential threats, in Pennsylvania more than any other one gets to the heart of this, if Doug Mastriano is elected governor of Pennsylvania, it is nearly impossible for us to have a presidential election with any meaning in 2024 when he is not willing to honor the results of what people in Pennsylvania do. Because the truth of the matter is, it becomes almost impossible for a Democrat to get elected without winning Pennsylvania. It's really hard for a Republican. Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin are the key swing states. And if you have people who, in those three states as governor, and in Pennsylvania, not only do you have the governor, but you get to appoint the Secretary of State if you are governor. If Doug Mastriano is doing that, and Doug Mastriano wins. Democracy is in probably in as great a peril as it was during the 148 minutes that Liz Cheney and Kinsinger and those guys were talking about. Maybe more. And it will be for two years. Six, so, seven hours yeah, Doug of Mastriano, silence the Republican from the White House. Another Trump endorsee running against Josh Shapiro, the state's attorney general. Shapiro is up three or four in surveys, right? Not enough, I don't think, in and of itself, to be successful. But again, sometimes with Mastriano, right after he was nominated, right, the RGA, the Republican Governors Association, put out a very tepid statement. Now they're in the race because they see it's closer than we thought. And I think, Jeff, to your point about Michigan, I think Pennsylvania is another one of those sort of hard, crystallized, ultra-maga states, too. Maybe Ohio, right? Maybe it's just that whole swath of the upper Midwest. And I feel like a little bit like with Mastriano, it's a little bit like 2015, like we talked about, which is, oh, well, he can't, man. he's too crazy. And what we're seeing is the other thing that I think we mentioned the last time we were all together was that for a guy like Mastriano, you know, whether or not it was the fact that he was at the Capitol on January 6th, that, you know, a lot of these anti-Semitic statements that are now coming out about what he said, now he's brought on a consultant who runs this Gab thing, who literally made an anti-Semitic remark like this week, that he'll never moderate. He'll always double and triple down on the crazy because that's who he is. But that doesn't mean he can't win. True. I know that's one of the fears that many of these 
Democratic campaigns have where they're uh, the front runners, Josh Shapiro, Gretchen Whitmer, Evers, is that people start discounting the greater pro-democracy world as they're looking at the same thing. Doug Mastriano can't win. Ryan Kelly, he's not going to be governor, uh, so we're going to take our money and put it somewhere else. They're worried about apathy. They're worried about the optics working against them, that their candidates appear too strong and people don't take the threat seriously enough. And I think that is a very real prospect. We can't discount the intense polarization. How when John Engler or Tommy Thompson won their third terms, they had probably 25, 30 point margins over the Democrats in those years. Tommy got 72%. Yeah, Engler got 68%. And those are ridiculous numbers. Like the popular kid doesn't win that for school president. Right, but right now, anybody who the Republicans nominate in these states is guaranteed 45% of the vote. And it's can they inch and claw their way to that last 4 or 5% to put them over the top? And the answer is maybe. Because, you know, Democrat enthusiasm is really high right now, and it's really high post-Dobbs and, you know, Roe being overturned. So Democrat enthusiasm is approaching 10 on that 10 scale, but Republican enthusiasm is about 12. And that's still something that has to be overcome. The Republicans are going to vote in November, and we have to make sure, we being the pro-democracy Americans, that we do too. I want to say one thing about the enthusiasm piece, Jeff, because this is a conversation that the three of us had in Detroit back in, I think, December, and a conversation I had just last week with a couple of leaders of the African-American in Philadelphia, and the main takeaway, in fact, that one of them said was, read, no one should take anything for granted about what's going to happen in Philadelphia in November, and that scares the hell out of me, to be honest with you. I mean, neither Fetterman nor Oz are a natural fit for the black constituency, I don't think. Shapiro is running with an African-American as his lieutenant governor nominee. And Mastriano should be anathema, just given the nature of who he is. Shapiro, is that the same one that took Trump's test for him so he could get into the University of Pennsylvania and lie and say he got into the best business school in the world? I worry about it in Milwaukee. I worry about it a little less, but I worry about it in Detroit. Three of us had a conversation in Detroit and the conversation you had in Philly. I think it's a valid concern and I think there are some places where, quite honestly, the Republicans are making some inroads with the African American community, which tends to be more How the fuck is that possible? than the white community. And I think that's one thing that we should, for our listeners, understand is that the strength of the Democratic coalition is its diversity. I what? Oh, okay. The strength of that diversity comes from the idea that you understand that it's not just racial diversity. And, you know, here's three white guys talking about this, so maybe I'm out over my skis. But it seems to me, anyway, that the African American and Latino communities, for sure, tend to be more culturally conservative than your average, you know, East Coast, West Coast Democrat, even suburban white Democrat. As you know, Reed, and you, you went and watched this, you know, I've worked on a project in 2015 and 16 through 2020 where we do doing focus groups all over the country looking at the rise of populist nationalism and progressive socialism. What are you doing, girl? And the day that I knew that Hillary Clinton was in trouble, she had been in Raleigh-Durham the day before, and we were going into Raleigh-Durham and doing an African-American group. Having worked in Republican politics, I had never actually seen an African-American focus group. 
And I got done with it, and I thought every American should see this, but I knew Hillary Clinton was in trouble because they started talking about it. It was with an organization, a British organization, so the British folks. They started talking about how all Hillary Clinton had talked about the day before was what they referred to as rich white people issues. She had come in and she talked climate change, she talked about a million problems that weren't the problems that they were facing on a day-to-day basis. And in fact, there were two of them in there that were considering voting for Donald Trump, even though the others all thought that Donald Trump might be kind of racist. So Democrats have a real challenge with that, both in terms of getting African-Americans to have a reason to go and vote, and simultaneously, they need to speak in ways that really get to the issues that they care about, which are much more personalized and localized, policing, education, those kind of things. You know, one of the other interesting pieces, Jeff, and, and you've got college-age kids, I asked about what about younger voters. And we've heard this from voters, you know, across the spectrum, age, demographics, whatever, but what they told me was they don't believe anybody. They are more progressive, probably, than older voters, but not surprisingly. But, you know, and I remember, and this is, of course, anecdotal, that young woman right after Dobbs was announced, who, you know, took to TikTok to say, Democrats, you had 40 years to fix this and you never did it. Now, whether or not that's true is sort of immaterial. If it leads to a broad-based apathy or even antipathy for the party to which they should belong, that also, I think, presents a real electoral issue. Absolutely. I mean, then the math doesn't work. I mean, if you have any erosion at all among black or Latino Hispanic voters, and you have any real erosion among the turnout levels of younger voters, then the math gets very hinky and nearly impossible for Democrats, and that's how a Doug Mastriano wins. Josh Shapiro is likely to get more than 90% of the black vote in Philadelphia. Two things are going to matter then. If he gets 95% of the black vote in Philadelphia and the raw number of turnout in Philadelphia, that marginal difference, does he get 90 or 95? 95% of what? Of what? And so those two things do matter. They really do matter. And it's not that a lot of these minority or even younger voters are going to suddenly say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to side with Doug Mastriano now. He's my guy, in, you know, in Dr. Oz. They're just saying, screw it, I'm not going to go vote. Right. And we heard that too, right? Which is, they know what they get with Republicans. They don't want that. But year in, year out, the sort of being taken for granted, I think, is catching up. Yeah, in some of these states, Nevada, Arizona, more in particular, where the Latino vote is much higher, there's a very real erosion that is taking place, especially among younger Latino men are very susceptible to the American First message, to a lot of the Republican programming. And we are seeing a real change in alignment there with younger Hispanic men. All right. So you guys are all hearing this on Monday, August 1st, but tomorrow, we've already talked about Michigan extensively, but here are the other primaries that will take place tomorrow, guys. Arizona, Kansas, Missouri, and Washington. Now, Arizona is important. It's like existential light, right? Which is a Democrat can win without Arizona. But if Carrie Lake wins in the Republican primary for governor against Karen Robson, you know, she makes Trump look like a fake, right? Like a poser. And she's already talking, Jeff, about the fact that like, well, you know, if I lose, it's because they stole it. 
If I lose, it's because they stole it. They put out fake polling so they can set up the big lie, and then they're going to have stolen it from me. Yeah, it's really interesting watching that dynamic there. Shit. By all accounts, is the favorite in the race likely to beat Robeson, the establishment choice? It's not guaranteed. But the dynamic that we could see there is even if Robeson wins, it's likely to be very close, and there could be some fakey lakey one. The primaries for the, the Lake Republican It's going to be hard to bring that necessary coalition to win in November. There's going to be some deft work that needs to be done on the Republican side. I'm not saying that Robeson winning means that the Democrats have a better chance of picking up that seat, but it doesn't completely take away Katie Hobbs' chance to flip that seat into the Democratic column. Well, and I would say that, you know, Trigby, just something that Jeff touched on was that given how politically insane Carrie Lake is, that if she loses by a little or by a lot, first, she will not concede quickly. Second, if and when she finally does, she will never stop saying it was stolen. And she very well could tell her people, like don't participate. This is a scam election. This is a rigged game. Don't participate. Don't do it. And like we could see, you know, Trump okay. doing with like a Brian Kemp in Georgia, a bunch of those ultra maggots just stay home and give Katie Hobbs a window that might have otherwise not exist. And that's one of these really weird dynamics that we're dealing with now, which is you have this hyper radicalized portion of, of one major party who are nihilistic, right? If you're not their person, they don't care. They want one of two things, the person they love or the person they hate, but they don't want the person they don't feel anything I think certainly if Lake loses, she's going to go all in that Deucey stole it from her. Because <laughs> Deucey has gone pretty much all in for Robson at this point. The other thing you got to remember about Deucey is Deucey's chair of the RGA. Now, what does Deucey do after going that hard at Carrie Lake and having done the right thing in 2020? How would he reconcile himself endorsing Carrie Lake if she wins, given that he's gone after it as hard as he has. Now, it's his job as chair of the RGA to get Republicans elected, and yet he knows that Carrie Lake is completely off her rocker. So, you know, if Carrie Lake loses, she's going to say that those guys cheated. If Lake wins, I don't know how Ducey reconciles that. Although, to your point, Ducey and our buddy Rexrode you know, they said the right things about Mastriano after Mastriano won the primary, but we called this on this show, when you and I were talking about it, that they were going to creep back. And shame on Ducey and Rexroad for doing that. And quite frankly, if Carrie Lake wins and Ducey comes out and endorses Carrie Lake, like, that's a big story because it will show how even really good people in the Republican Party become completely corrupted and are willing to sacrifice themselves completely, even the ones who kind of stood up to Trump. Well, trick me, so far there's only literally two people on the list. Well, that yeah. Done that. <laughs> literally two in the entire freaking country. Very so good Republican. we shouldn't count on anything. Well, but it doesn't help when so Peter far, Meyer, who did vote for impeachment, He's got a bunch of ads being run by the DCCC, and Kinzinger got redistricted out by the Democrats. Like, what the what? hell are they doing? Well, but that's, again, this is the difference between, <laughs> as you say, and you and Maya talk about every week, it's the difference between the game that everybody's used to and the game we're in. Well, These things matter. That Liz, you know, we'll get to her in a second, has got a primary hearing later in the month, and Kinzinger's gone, 
right? They intentionally drew his district down. And that's yeah. fine. Like, that's what they did. They drew but, it know, out. Sort of a, well, I guess I'll do what I have How to do. How can they do but that? That's neither here nor there. Okay. The other side of Arizona here is the United States Senate race. So Fucking gerrymandering. Mark Kelly's the incumbent senator, Democrat, astronaut, husband of Gabby Giffords. Surveys show him up, not comfortably, but in a fairly healthy six, eight points against whoever the Republican nominee is. Donald Trump has endorsed Blake Masters, who is the sort of fanboy of Peter Thiel. So he's all in on the big lie. He's all in on guns. He's all in on all of this stuff. But he's also so far out there, Jeff, that he's almost a character himself. Yes, he's become that. I mean, you've got these kind of cartoon characters running in lots of states, but it's working. He's outside the margin of error consistently in polls over the last month. He's taken the lead. It seems real. It seems like it's enough to get him through. And you look at somebody like Mark Kelly, who kind of is this larger-than-life action figure. You know, he was the astronaut and the husband of Gabby Giffords, and he's led this fight for gun safety, and he's done all these wild things. And you think, okay, he's got a $25 million war chest, and the Republican Party is divided. This all seems great until these kooks start winning in November. Blake Masters wins a Senate race. Doug Mastriano wins a governor's race. We have a situation where when you go state by state and you talk candidate by candidate, race by race, all the dynamics seem to be favoring the normal same candidates, whether it's Mark Kelly or Shapiro or Gretchen Whitmer or Tony Evers. But it's not realistic as we look at our experience in elections, you know, as students of election history, to think that the Democrats can expect to run the table on all of these races. They might be able to win enough of these to hold on to the U.S. Senate. The math, when you look at the competitive races, becomes very hard for them to hold the U.S. House, no matter how much the environment may have neutralized. No longer decidedly in Republicans' favor, maybe back to neutral right now. It's still in a neutral environment, very hard for them to win. And then they run the table on all of these governor's races in these existential states. If that's where we end up in November, great. Democracy's had a, a wonderful night. But I think we need to be realistic and temper people's expectations for like, we need to be prepared that things are going to go sideways in some of these places. They always do. Well, they have since 2001, so why should we expect anything that's going to be different now? Right, and so whether it's uh, Mark Kelly versus Blake Masters, you think, okay, that should be an easy re-elect at the end of the day. Well, it is until it isn't. I guess my admonition here is we can't assume that because the Republicans are nominating these Frankenstein monster candidates, these cartoon cutouts of ultra-magas, that they're going to lose these elections, that they're not going to be taken seriously in these races. There is a normalcy bias that kind of works its way in. They'll be looked at by most voters who don't live and breathe this stuff as legitimate contenders. And I think we need to take seriously the threat that these candidates pose. All right, so guys, I want to list off the rest of the primaries here in August. Tomorrow, we mentioned Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, Washington. August 4th is Tennessee. August 9th, Connecticut, Minnesota, Vermont, Wisconsin. August 13th, Hawaii. August 16th, Alaska. I think Sarah Palin running up there again. And then, obviously, also Wyoming, where Liz Cheney is facing a primary challenge for not one, but four different ultra-maga people. And then August 23rd, Florida and New York. So a 
lot of big states here, guys, right as we start to hit the fall stride. All right, so guys, let's leave it there for today. And everybody out there, this concludes the first part of our conversation with Lincoln Project Senior Advisors Trigby Olson and Jeff Timmer. Until next time, you can follow Trigby on Twitter at Trigby Olson and follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Timmer. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Reed Gale. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for part two of our conversation. subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV line, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Seneca and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Gale. See you on the next episode. That was great. Thank you very much. And thanks for a million listeners, subscribers, followers across social media. And if you're an Arizona Democrat or, or Arizona, if you're an Arizona person, please write me in, Trista, for Arizona State Mine Inspector, because the Democrats forgot to put a horse in that race. So if you don't, write me in. You don't write me in then we'll be stuck with the gop candidates so we can't have that can we so anyway shout out to kamp student radio at the university of arizona and the daily wildcats thanks guys and um, kpyt pasquale tribal radio yo emma tucson arizona on the reds with trista show Wear a mask, indoors, public spaces. Indoor public spaces, don't be an idiot. Wear a mask. Hi there, we're back with the continuation of the Lincoln Project, the 2022 midterm elections, 100 days away, part one. Oh, uh, no, sorry, we need part two. Part two. More episodes. We need part one. Anyway, so shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University 
of arid stoner. <clears throat> now that we're recreational, <laughs> that's my that's my legalize it joke. Um, federalize it, legalize it, federalize it. Stupid cat. Anyway, so uh, keep your boy Pascal Yucky Tabo ready on the res with Trista Show in Tucson. Arid Stoner. Okay, part two. Let's go. Host Reed Galen is hey, joined by Lincoln Project Senior Advisors Trigger Olson and Jeff Taylor. Thank you. Thank you to every one of you out there. Not no, thank only you have guys, man. Two million downloads for July. You guys are awesome. We passed 22 million downloads since we started last Deserve February. Deserve it. I cannot Great say podcast. thank you enough. You're I need to ask you one more thing. Thank you. Share the podcast with your friends, I will. your family, I have. anybody who you think and I will is interested to and do dedicated so. to preserving American democracy. In fact, I want to be an affiliated. I've asked my touch if I can now, be an affiliated podcast because I'm I'm supporting all the pro-democracy podcasts. Midas Touch Lincoln Pro- uh, Project. Welcome back to Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Gill. Hi, this is part two of our latest conversation with Project Senior Advisors Trick B. Olson and Jeff Timmer about the 2022 midterm mm-hmm. elections. If you didn't catch part one of our conversation, we did. I welcome you to give it a listen. Now, let's Thanks. get back to it. But we just came from that. All right, guys, so let's talk about some of the key races in the general that we think are important for democracy and are a little bit all over the map, literally. So we talked a little bit about Nevada. <laughs> We've already discussed Arizona. I want to talk about Missouri and the insanity there, yeah. Florida, Texas, and the fascinating dynamic occurring here in my own state of Utah. So let's talk a little bit about Nevada first, Trigby. So in the governor's race, you've got Steve Sisolak going up against former Las Vegas Metro Sheriff Joe Lombardo. You know, it shows again, like we've seen in some of these other races, Sisolak's up three or four, but not at 50. You know, I think he's a generally well-thought-of guy. The last time I was out there, he seemed to be well-positioned, which is if you talk to progressives, they think he's a Republican. If you talk to Republicans, they think he's a wacko progressive. So, you know, he's <laughs> he's naturally triangulating the joint. So how do you see that race? You know, we scored that race 18, which the existential races are 20, and then you have a bunch of races that we scored as 18. It's a huge race, and it's a huge race for a few reasons. One... Who's the governor in Nevada matters in presidential politics because that race is going to impact the secretary of state's race in Nevada, of course, is a swing state. You know, our colleague, our peer, Stuart Stevens, every time he talks, he brings up the idea that the top of the ballot candidate, the governor in the state of Nevada, tends to be the vote driver for down ballot races. Well, in Nevada, you have a huge Senate race between Adam Laxalt and Cortez Mastow, and you've got three Democrat House seats that are all marginal. And in fact, there was polling that came out, quite honestly, much like some of these other states, shows Sisolak at 46, Cortez Mastow at maybe like 44, and those House Democrats all ahead but all down around 41, 42, and only by a point or two. So that Sisolak race is going to be the driver. Absolutely. And, and I think, as we talked about in the first part, the very real erosion, especially among younger Hispanic males, is, I think, in part explains what could be going on in Nevada. We're seeing a 
continuing realignment of the electorate here. I guess if you first look at the demographics in the state, you would think that it's likely to be more democratic than these polls appear, more likely in line with what we've seen over the last 20 years. But Republicans have done well in Nevada over the last couple of decades. They've had the governor's mansion before Sisolak for a couple of terms been in and out of the U.S. Senate seats out of Nevada with John Ensign and Dean Heller. And Nevada always seems to be this place where these top-of-the-ticket races, especially the U.S. Senate, boil down to really a couple thousand votes. Harry Reid was able to famously always hold on, but just barely. And when I look at all of these existential or existential light states that we've been talking about, Nevada seems the one most likely poised to flip to the other side. And I want to just say one thing, too, because this is the second time you mentioned younger Latino voters. I mean, I was out there two or three months ago now. And when we talk about the dynamics of, you know, the Democratic coalition being chipped away at, Trigby, you mentioned Gillespie and Virginia. When I was out there, what I was told was that the Republicans had set up a voter registration storefront in East Las Vegas, and they were dumping money into it, just dumping money into it whereas the folks that i was talking to not part of the they were all democrats right big d democrats or lean big d democrats but they weren't part of any official democratic party institution they were out doing this on their own working their tails off across the state not only in clark county which is vegas but also washoe county which is reno and up in elko and almost always understaffed, continuously underfunded. So we should not underestimate, and I think we should also use it as a reminder, that the Republicans are well-resourced, well-staffed when they want to be from a professional perspective, and they are relentless. Because as you you noted, a Republican to win doesn't need to get 15% of the black vote. But if they get 1% more than they got previously, or if a candidate gets three or four percent more of the latino vote than they did previously or another candidate did previously like that's all she wrote so one of the more progressive younger people within the lincoln project i was having a conversation with them about latino voters not long ago and it was almost impossible for them to fathom that latino voters wouldn't be all in for the democrats in the environment we're in and i started telling them the story and I talked about this earlier, when Rich Engler and Tommy Thompson were turning Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan from hard blue states to red states, they did it by going into Racine County, Macomb County, and around Pittsburgh, and these union guys, who had always been loyal Democrats, started voting on (laughs) cultural issues. They had messages that appealed to them in and around cultural issues. And to be honest, like the Democrats have left themselves exposed on both some economic and some cultural value issues and some geopolitical issues to the messaging that Trump and Republicans have been pushing to them. The Hispanics who are first or second generation Americans, a lot of whom came from places without democracy, they don't like it if they buy into that Donald Trump is standing up that America is great and there's cultural issues or economic issues that resonate with them to some degree. They left some of those places for a reason. And you don't need to get a huge percentage of them any more than back in the day. If we could get 10% of union voters to flip and vote Republican, we were going to win time and time again. 
because it's a game of small numbers. And I think that's going on with Hispanics. You know, Democrats have taken for granted union voters, union voters, and that demographic now are the base of the Republican Party. There's no reason to think that those who are working Americans who are Hispanic wouldn't be open to some of those same messaging. And they too tend to be more religious than your average upper income white person. But for some of those first, second, third generation Latino Americans, because they are Americans, born and raised here, probably speak English at home, haven't they done what we've always asked new Americans to do? They've assimilated. And so once you're an American, right, I've said this before, when you go to France, what is it full of? The French. When you go to Germany, what is it full of? The Germans. When you go to England, what is it full of? The English. Italy, the Italians, Spain, the Spanish, right? When you come to America, it's full of Americans, but that could mean anything. That's what's so great about America. I mean, as you guys know, my wife's Lithuanian. I can be lots of things. I can never be a Lithuanian, and yet she's an American, right? She got citizenship, she's an American, she's still a Lithuanian too. And that's what's so great about America. But the other piece of it is, what you have to understand is, if you're a first or second or third generation American whose family came from Nicaragua, Ortega's Nicaragua, the idea that you're going to want to go back to, you know, socialism is a loaded word. I mean, Noriega used that all the time. And so when you've got somebody who's saying, America is a great place and we need to lower the gas tax so that you can get to your job with your pickup truck, that's going to resonate and you can't just take it for granted that just because of what the background is that they're going to be your voters. Well, and I was saying this, Jeff, too, as we move on to the next state, just to close this particular little loop on the Latino community. First of all, it's very diverse. The guy that was my best man at my wedding, Mexican descent, he said, you white people see us all the same. And, you know, there's differences in every ethnicity. You know, South Florida probably has 20-plus ethnic Latino groups. You know, Texas, as I mentioned earlier, is probably predominantly of Mexico, but because it shares a 1,500-mile border. But I was Lots talking of to a supporter of ours who lives in San Antonio, but was born and raised on the border. And said, you know, when you say defund the police in the Rio Grande Valley, what folks down there here, Jeff, is you want to put half my family out of work. Because of the border, so many of the families down there have cops that are local, state, sheriff's deputies, border patrol, national guard, interior, whatever it is. And if you don't live there, it doesn't necessarily make sense. It's like when you go to South Louisiana and half the family is, you know, in the fishing business and the other half is in the oil business, right? Like they live side by side, even if it's sometimes uncomfortable. And so you have to sort of take off your, I'm smarter than you have because I don't live there. You go down and talk to folks who actually live in those places and you find out like, why don't you spend a little time talking to the folks in these places, seeing what their issues are. And if you know that this is a bad message, that as a democratic leader, like Joe Biden did during his State of the Union, you should say, we are going to fund the police. Right, because that seems to be the damn albatross that hangs around the neck of a lot of Democrats who I'm sure hate it and don't believe it. We can't underestimate the power of a populist the economic cops. message to people who are struggling economically or maybe not struggling, but aren't too far removed from the struggle. They know what it takes to earn, to work, to pay your bills. We can't assume that the appeal of the America first Trump populism is only to white voters. Now, 
it does seem maybe a little incongruous with some of the overt racism that goes into the mega message but that's that's not as readily apparent to most run-of-the-mill civilian voters i call them civilians because they're not living and breathing this stuff every day like we are and that's most people and i think there is an appeal and again this doesn't mean that republicans in texas or in nevada are going to win a majority of latino voters but they don't need to they just need to erode slightly the margins by which democrats have historically won those voters yeah think about it in a state like nevada if they cut four percent off the democrats total with hispanics they will sink sisalak cortez mastow and probably two of the three Democrat members of Congress. You know, this is slightly different, but I was part of a thing where there was a folks group in a big urban area. And we did a Democrat group and we brought up to fund the police. The African Americans in the group were adamantly against defunding the police. They wanted it reformed, right? Right. They don't want no cops. They want better cops. And who the hell doesn't? Right. But you know who the people that yeah, were that were cops. all about defunding the police? <clears throat> it was these young progressives who didn't even live in the urban area they were from the suburbs and it was the most amazing conversation it would seem to me that the bigger the fan you are of defund the police the further away from needing police you are yeah totally so so you mentioned Catherine cortez masto she's the democratic united states senator took over for harry reed when harry reed retired so now she's in a dogfight with adam laxalt who's the republican nominee his grandfather Paul Laxalt was a senator there a million years ago. Ronald Reagan's best friend. Ronald Reagan's best oh, friend. Laxalt's sort of a gadfly. He's run for a million things. He, he sort of slipped into an attorney general's race years ago, served one term, lost again. Now he managed to get through this primary with the help of not only Donald Trump, but I think also Ron DeSantis. I think he's got a lot of, Trigby, correct me if I'm wrong, behind-the-scenes establishment help. McConnell, because his father is Pete Domenici. Right. His father is Pete Domenici, which is another story, which the right goes crazy at me every time I bring it up, because I think he should go by the name Adam Domenici. I think it's his father served honorably, and I think he should use that name. But, you know, he's also a guy who has gone MAGA when he needs to. There was a story out of Texas a couple of weeks ago where he posted this, guys. He posted a video of himself standing inside a refrigerated truck that held the bodies of those 50-some migrants who had all died in the back of a semi with this really creepy grin on his face what and you know this is something that, that we'll talk about in a little while but there is a strain and maybe it's not even a strain weird. i'm gonna call it a torrent because that's really what it is of inhumanity with so many of these people now laxalt's always been a goon but he's made some sort of transition jeff into something that is the kind of thing that like Maybe it's what we saw when we left the party. We're like, oh, geez, like, screw that. Like, I don't want anything to do with these people. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that has happened in the last seven years under Donald Trump and the Republican Party is those elements, those characters who existed under the rocks and the dark spaces, who we knew were there. Yes, we were willing to accept their votes, but we never welcomed them into polite society or gave them microphones or positions of power. That has now changed. The permission structure to release your inner cretin seems to have been manifested itself in people like Adam Laxalt, where they're very comfortable coming out there and foolishly applying that, you know, if you want to enter the country illegally, even if you're trying to seek asylum, well, you know, you might end up in this refrigerator truck like your pals here, where that somehow acceptable imagery and messaging that is not just that is accepted, sick. but is cheered. 
And his photos what? think it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. It's they cheer it. They're like, yeah, that's You're what they get. Yeah. That's, that's what he's fucking going for there, and it is becoming inciting violence. That becomes a story for an afternoon, maybe in Nevada. It doesn't even get national legs that this kind of thing is happening. Where you know, ten years ago, when you had Sharon Angle and the witch person from Delaware, Christine O'Donnell, right? Christine, they were part of the national news every night. About, oh my God, look at these freaks that are running but now they're just so damn many that nobody even bothers anymore well we're guests at the freak show now jeff i think is the problem <laughs> right i just think laxalt takes sharon angle right and puts sharon angle in a prettier package in a post-trump environment where you know like he can get away with it and the other thing i mean cortez masto isn't harry reed no one is going to mistake her political acumen as being harry reed's no, and as I mentioned previously, when I was out there, you could feel the political vacuum that Senator Reid left when he died was tangible. It was palpable. If Harry Reid were running against Adam Laxalt, it'd be like that scene in Pulp Fiction where the guy says, I'm going to take him apart pipe by pipe. I mean, Harry Reid would be completely dismantling the guy. I'm not sure what Cortez Mastaz campaign isn't doing that. That, coupled with Sisolak struggling, is why the national Republicans in McConnell world view Nevada as their best pickup opportunity. I mean, that's where they're making their play. Ironically, considering Georgia's on the ballot again. <laughs> well, but like, think about it. Think about what they did there, right? Like, they made a deal with the devil, with Trump, on Walker. But only after they tried to kill him off first, and it didn't work. To our earlier conversation from episode one about trying to engineer your own primary. Exactly. And in truth, with Herschel Walker, the reality is... Herschel Walker shouldn't be running for the United States Senate. Herschel Walker needs to lose. I'm not saying that he shouldn't lose. He needs to lose. But it's kind of sad what they've done to Herschel Walker, right? Like, I guess he's an adult. He made his own decision, but he needs help. In Nevada, that top of the ticket, the governor's race, the Senate race, has such big implications because those House races, you know, Timmer, we talk about this all the time. I don't know which two of the three are most endangered if the top of the ticket implodes, but they may all three be in danger. And, you know, if you're not holding the two Vegas seats as a Republican or a Democrat, those are the kinds of seats where a majority in the U.S. House is built. In Vegas and the suburbs of Vegas, right? In Henderson, Nevada is the kind of place that you build a majority in the U.S. House. And Democrats are in peril there in part because they're in peril up the ticket. Yeah, not to get too into the Nevada weeds, but I don't think we can underestimate, too, local issues like Lake Mead and the water shortage. When voters are pissed off, incumbents are in trouble. They're not interested in the most part about the existential or kind of the theoretical, ethereal arguments about climate change. I don't have any fucking water. It's interesting because I want to say one thing about that before we move on to Missouri was I remember back in 2008... Maybe early 2009, I, was, I still lived in California, and that was when California was really at the depths of the financial crisis. And somebody said to me, what's it going to take for something to actually change? And I said, not knowing that the three of us would ever be sitting here talking, I said, one day you wake up, you turn on the lights, they don't come on. You open the spigot, the water doesn't come out. You look outside, the garbage isn't picked up. You dial 911, the cop doesn't come, the fireman doesn't come these are the things that like produce change the problem is jeff to your point is they create change in an 
almost apocalyptic way. Yeah, Lake Mead is empty. They're digging out, you know, bodies of gangsters from oh 40 God. years ago now, right? Lake Powell is empty. And this has massive effects for on order of 60, 70 million Americans, starting with California, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, where I live, Idaho, Wyoming. Look, guys, I live in the high desert, right? We may get hopefully a lot of snow in the winter, but like humidity here is 13%. I live in the second driest state in the country, and that's one of those things where it's a variety of things that is going on. But I think, Jeff, to your point, we should never underestimate the fact that voters, maybe in the individual, make us crazy. But in the collective, typically have a pretty good idea of what's going on. All right. So speaking of places where people should have an idea of what's going on, let's move to Missouri. So there's a United States Senate seat there that's open. Roy Blunt is retired. Well, that's encouraging news. Missouri is a very conservative state. We should remind most folks that Missouri is a southern state. It was a part of the Confederacy. It looks weird because the Mason-Dixon line runs along the bottom of it, but it is a southern state. Well, the interesting thing about that race is, so Schmidt's the attorney general. Right. Now, he signed on to the bogus Texas deal after 2020. Yeah, and he's filed a bunch of suits against Texas the Biden administration deal. that have just been thrown out of court. What you know, it's Texas to the deal. point where, and this is the thing that's kind of a big deal about what's happening in Missouri. Now, you have another candidate, John Wood, who, John Danforth, who is a giant, you know, in Missouri politics, has a pack that's supposedly going to put $20 million behind Wood running as an independent. And Wood, we should note, was a Republican council on the January 6th committee. He's from Missouri and he is considering moving back home to run for that seat as an independent. Yeah, with 20 million bucks in super PAC money behind him from Danforth. And Danforth basically has said that both parties are just broke. You know, Missouri could get fascinating, right? Really though, that's so good news. Schmidt's gonna be MAGA. And so if Wood runs and Danforth follows through with his promise to campaign for him and put 20 million bucks behind him, you could have a really kind of a game-changing, fascinating dynamic going on there. Well, I'm all for game-changing and fascinating dynamics. All right. Before we leave Missouri, though, I don't think we could ignore Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley, he's a runner. He's a track star. There's this massive dichotomy, this massive divide between what ultra-MAGA voters look like and act like vis-a-vis some distorted view of masculinity, which is either super buff or super fat, but, you know, basically telling everybody to fuck off. There's usually a firearm involved. But the people who represent them are like Josh Hawley, who's got, like, little spaghetti arms. And he runs like he was afraid. And he was on January 6th. He put the fist up to get the crowd going. And then he literally ran for his life. And then he shows up at the Turning Point USA thing, you know, in a black t-shirt. You've got Ted Cruz there saying my pronouns are kiss my ass. Like, none of these people are like good examples of masculinity in any form. Nor is Donald Trump. Nor is Ron DeSantis. Like, none of these people are like, oh yeah, that guy's like, that's a guy. That's a dude. (laughs) These are all like, oh God. Holly's announced today that he's got a book coming out either later in the year or early next year. And the title of his book is Manhood. <laughs> yeah. Is his exploration looking for it or what? Yes, I think it's open to a lot of uh, late night uh, comics. You know, all those guys, right? Like part of Donald Trump's takeover and read you and I talked about this so often during the primaries in 2015, particularly when. Trump would go after the wives, you know, he went after Jeb's wife, he went after Heidi Cruz, 
you know, and we had talked about this, if Mitt Romney had been on that stage and somebody had talked about Ann that way, or even more so, Donald Trump had said those things about Laura Bush and W were on the stage, George W. Bush would have gone over there and stuck a cowboy boot up his ass. Oh yeah, it would have been fabulous. And honestly, if somebody would have walked over and beat the living crap out of him, they would have rocketed to the top just out of the principle of it. Little Marco would have run over and got just a tiny kick in with his little Marco boot. Right. He'd have been the guy that went. His little boot. Right. But um, I think the thing with Holly, this is the thing that's got to be driving Nicola nuts. Will Smith. Liz Cheney is just handing it to her. I do want to say that, and, and Trigby, you and I might have spoken about this, that with her presentation during that last January 6th committee, she did take a scalpel to the manhoods of people like Holly and McCarthy and show them just to be the gigantic cowards that they are. All right, let's get to these final states. They're big states. They're important states. Florida, guys. So Ron DeSantis doesn't have a primary. You know, he's got bags and bags of cash in the bank. The Democrats have Charlie Crist, who's literally been every stripe of Republican, Democrat, independent you could be, and he's still somehow hanging on, running against Nikki Fried, who's the agriculture commissioner. It's one of those weird things where Chris, maybe it's just on the strength of name ID, seems like he has an edge in the primary, but probably gets crushed in the general. Freed, I think, is probably a more dynamic candidate. He's probably still very uphill climb for anybody against DeSantis and the powerhouse that he's created. But what do we, how do we look down there? Because obviously this is a precursor to a theoretical DeSantis presidential. Well, it shows how quickly things can change in politics. When DeSantis was elected in 2018, it was by a statewide margin of less than 31,000 votes. It was, you know, a fraction of a percent, barely one. And I think over the last four years, Florida has become much more red than people attributed to. No national prognosticators looking at Florida and thinking, boy, Ron DeSantis is going to have a hard time getting reelected in the state. He only won by 30,000 votes. It's just assumed that he's going to walk to re-election. Now, I do think that the prohibitive favorite, and I don't think that the Democrats in this climate are going to mount a serious challenge to him, but there's a lot that could still make Florida competitive. There's local issues. There's racial issues. In fact, we don't know how many of those votes that voted for DeSantis in 2018 and then again Trump in 2020 have died of COVID because they're older white voters. There's some unknowns, but it seems like Florida in the prohibitive cost of really competing in Florida is going to keep big national democratic money away in the necessity of playing defense in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada. Playing offense in Georgia is much more economically sound investing in Stacey Abrams is a better ROI than investing in Charlie Christopher Nikki Fried. I think with DeSantis, the governor's race there is going to be hard. But for DeSantis, it's all about setting up the presidential. I don't know, you know, in the last couple of days, I don't know if you've seen this, but he was in Tampa where he got going about woke corporations imposing ideology on the economy. And he's talking about how Teachers are telling kids to change their genders, right? This is really happening. Yeah, so he's interesting to me 
from a democracy standpoint in the sense that the whole Fucking thing about you basically trying to push companies out of having any sort of say oh. about politics or anything beyond Fuck. business, but he's more than willing to take the money. We used to have a word for that. I think it was called fascist. Yeah, well, I mean, it's literally Vladimir Putin telling the oligarchs business needs to stay out of politics, but oh, by the way, you have to fund everything I do. Well, and actually, Mitch McConnell said that very thing in the spring of 2021. Stay out of politics, but keep the money flowing. DeSantis is an illiberal threat in the sense that he is going after institutions using autocratic tactics of threats for repression and violence. Not violence, but threats and repression. Yeah, but violence will come next. Well, violence may come next, and certainly, you know, that precedent, Donald Trump said it, so... In the case of Nikki Fried or Chris, whoever gets through against them, what you hope is is that they're able to start drawing some contrast and laying some gloves to that and, you know, do some damage to him. And maybe they get lucky and squeak by with some breaks. But I think their role at a minimum is to lay some punches on the guy and see if he can actually take a punch. Because in truth, Ron Sanchez has never had to take a punch. No, he hasn't and We've talked about that previously, which is if you've spent any time around early stage presidential campaigns, you can very quickly tell who's going to make it, who's got the shot. And DeSantis has proven to me that he's got the will to do these things in the context of being governor of Florida, but not necessarily the ability to do it in the context of being a presidential candidate. All right, let's move west to the great state of Texas, the Lone Star State, my former home. So Greg Abbott running for a third term has gone full MAGA, full ultra MAGA, and if Abbott had just been a regular Republican, he would probably be winning by like 30. But he and his political consultant up in New Hampshire chose to decide that they want to have some quixotic presidential bid, you know, in 2024 as well. And he is the kind of guy who his ideology mixed with his actual failure as governor should spell his end, especially when facing a guy like Beto O'Rourke, who's well-funded. I think he's a natural political athlete, but it's Texas, so we shouldn't, oh. you know, get too far ahead of ourselves. It's one of the most difficult races to kind of i guess objectively analyze emotionally i look at a guy like abbott and think he's just the kind of poser politician who followed the peter principle he's risen to the level of his own he's a really shitty governor he's not a good politician but he might be in still the right state in the right year to withstand all of his failures O'Rourke is another emotional candidate. They look at him and his God-given political ability and think, wow, he's the embodiment of all I want to see in a politician. He's the guy who can flip this red state blue. He becomes the embodiment of the hopes and dreams in maybe expectations that are even beyond his considerable abilities. So he can be the kind of candidate in Texas where he could run a lot of 48% races but never be able to get to 50%. Yeah, I mean, he just barely lost to Ted Cruz in 2018. If he'd had another 10 days, he'd probably beat him. But, you know, that's one of the things, too, which is, you know, I think Beto is a guy who wants to win. I think he wants to win the right way. But if you're going to beat somebody like a Greg Abbott, you're going to have to take the meat axe to him day in and day out and be ruthless <laughs> about it because he is tried and true, right? I mean, it is still a more Republican state than it is a Democratic state. But... I don't know how many people wake up in the morning trick me and go, I need more Greg Abbott in my life. <laughs> Greg Abbott's 
problem, and you talked about this before anybody else, Reed, because you know that state. You know, his problem was he was busy with presidential ambitions, and so that's what he was playing to. But I just think with Beto, it's going to be really hard because he's got to have the right environment around him. You know, Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player on the planet, but he wasn't winning championships until he had Scottie Pippen in the right environment around him. He has the potential to be a once-in-a-generation politician, and maybe if he were from a different state that wasn't quite as red, he might be walking. But, you know, at the end of the day, would I like to see Beto O'Rourke beat Greg Abbott? Absolutely, because I think Greg Abbott epitomizes the worst of the Republican Party. But if you had to choose between Beto winning and somebody said to you the deal is he wins and Doug Mastriano wins, it's not a deal you take. And when people are investing their time and resources, if you're in Texas, I think you should be all in for him. If you're other places, you have to make sure that Shapiro and Whitmer and Evers are set. And if you're in a position where you can help all four, you should. But you got to put those other things first for the sake of democracy. But, you know, I hope all four will win. All right, guys, so let's wrap up the day with my new home state of Utah and the United States Senate race here. Now, Utah is as ruby red as they come, maybe just behind West Virginia and Wyoming. Senator Mike Lee is up for re-election. He is running for, I believe, his third term. And the Democrats here made, a, I thought, it a very wise and savvy decision, which is Democrats make up about 13% of the electorate here in Utah. They chose not to field a candidate in this race, and Evan McMullen, who I've known for many years, ran for as an independent in 2016, is of the LDS faith, has Utah roots, is running against Lee as an independent. Latest survey out of the Deseret News, which we should understand is the LDS churches, they own that newspaper, had a survey out with, it was Lee 41, Evan 36. Now, Trigby, you talked about, you know, being as close to 50 as you could be. If you're an incumbent two-term United States senator from the state of Utah where your dad was the head of BYU and you're at 41 in August, like, you got to be worried. Yeah, not only that, I was just thinking as you were saying that, you know, the unique thing about the Utah race is this. No matter how bad the macro environment, which has admittedly gotten a lot better for Democrats, has kind of gone to neutral. But even if it were to go back to not being good for Democrats... Mike Lee is still in trouble no matter what happens with the national environment because he should be up by a lot more than that and he's well under 50%. And it's a huge deal if Evan McMullen wins because, like you alluded to, it's Democrats, Republicans, Independents. It's a different coalition. And, you know, that's the kind of race that has the potential to sneak up on people. And the other thing is, I don't know that the NRSC and McConnell world and all those people, I don't think they're going to go all in to save Mike Lee because Evan McMullen is kind of better for him. Are you kidding me? If you're sitting at First Street Northeast and you're like, we got to go where and spend money where for who? Yeah, it's not going to happen. And you think Mitt's (laughs) going to stand up and save him? Absolutely not. But... You know, the other part, too, and I've mentioned this on the show before, is that late in 2020, Mike Lee gave a speech when he was introducing Donald Trump, where he compared Donald Trump to Captain Moroni, who is a hero in the LDS faith, one of selflessness, virtue, community of self, 180 degrees. Selflessness. And there were a lot of, as I understand it, because again, it is a very unique society and a unique faith, is that a lot of people were hugely upset about that. 
because Utah has a Utah nice thing, much like probably a, a Minnesota nice or a Wisconsin nice, right? Like, it's almost Southern, right? Like, they're never going to say anything bad about you to your face, but they wait till you leave and, like, they'll do it then. And I think that, you know, because so much of the state's politics, especially conservative and Republican politics, is dominated by the church and things that, guys, you and I, the three of us, will never see and never hear because so much of this happens at the stakes, at the churches, with the bishops, if it's going to happen, that Lee's in a lot of trouble because he can't even count on his own base. So he's going to have to go like, out into the hinterland where it's less LDS and more ultra-MAGA. Whereas Evan, I know like me and my friends are going to vote for him, if whatever that's worth. Salt Lake City, Democrats are going to vote for him because they have taken the view of Evan is more conservative than I am. He tells me he's more conservative than I am. But if I got to choose, I'll be damned if I want Mike Lee back for six more years. It really looks like, you know, watching this one from afar, and I've known Evan for a few years now, and I think he's, uh, he really gets the nature of the fight that he's in. He's bridging that nice with the knife fighter that needs to happen in order to topple an incumbent. But it seems like right and wrong is the central organizing principle that is defining this race. And it's not partisanship so much as the fact that among many partisan Republicans, Mike Lee is viewed as standing for unjustifiable behavior. And I think he's in trouble now for sure. I agree with that assessment right out there. I think that the DOJ investigation, any added January 6th committee hearings, could really spell trouble for Mike Lee if it's divulged here, you know, if they show these nice screens about, you know, who Donald Trump was calling during those 187 minutes when it showed how many calls went to Mike Lee. I think these, kind of could it's going to take a lot of Republicans' elections. Haha. Ha. That's my prediction. Yeah, and just on that note, real quick, is remember it was Mike Lee. Senator Mike Lee of Utah that pointed not only Sidney Powell, the Kraken lady, but also John Eastman to the White House. So every time he says, I was looking for a constitutional answer to this, I believe, Jeff, to your point, he is one of the people most responsible for continuing Trump's actions in that time because he facilitated people who would go along with the lie and would redouble the fiction in Trump's mind that he did. All right, guys, before we get out of here, I'm going to put you on the spot. Jeff, give me one thing for the listeners. Give us something you want folks to know. I guess I want to leave with this warning or admonition. You know, we've gone through over two episodes, all these races across several states, many different personalities. We've dissected the fact that there's these cartoon characters, these existential threats to democracy, people like Doug Mastriano, Kerry Lake, running in so easy to discount them to say, oh, they can't win. These people are going to win in several of these states. Maybe not in Pennsylvania, but maybe not if in they're disqualified. That's why you got to call the and DOJ. On November 8th, and Lincoln Project, get behind this, man. Wins and Tony Evers we got to disqualify them all from well, elections altogether. They have to be barred from public office. likely to be then facing in January of 2025. I agree with everything Jeff said. I guess something that's going to be on my radar screen in August, and this is kind of far afield, there is a primary in Minnesota 5 where Illa Omar is running against Don Samuels. It's not on anybody's radar screen, but Illa Omar is in 
really the race of her life with Don Samuels. I do not know if Don Samuels will win. He's a Jamaican immigrant, but Don Samuels has Illa Omar at least on the ropes, which is a big deal. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that I'm going to be watching is, of course, in Wyoming, there are a lot of Democrats who appear to be crossing over. Whether that's enough for Cheney to ultimately prevail against Hagman, you know, she's got an uphill fight. But what that number is is going to say a lot to I me would about vote for her if I were in Wyoming. Definitely. Well, and for me, guys, I think what I'm interested in seeing is job. whether or not she's a there is a significant so. erosion yeah. for Republican candidates among older white voters. My sense of this started back when Russia invaded Ukraine and people like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, J.D. Vance and all these people all in on the pro-Russia side. I think a lot of them have left those positions, but some still haven't. But I think that that was, you know, Russia, for so many of us, right, was the existential threat to our lives as children and young adults. And I think those memories don't fade quickly. I think that the January 6th hearings have brought to light for a lot of those voters that this is not how America is supposed to work. I don't like seeing this stuff. I don't like Donald Trump. And if people are going to accept his support or act like him, I don't really want any more of that. And then I think lastly, just, you know, for folks uh -huh. like my parents, they do have some concern for the future for their grandchildren, uh -huh. let's say. And I think that they see one party who they've always belonged uh -huh. to, the Republican Party, doing nothing but being carnival barkers and a level of ugliness that they don't see as the kind of people they want to associate with. So I'll, I'll be interested to see how that works out. Well, before I let you guys go, Jeff, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Timmer. I promise to be entertaining and not safe for work. <laughs> Timmer is one of the best followers on Twitter. That's right. Guys, follow Timmer. Yeah, believe follow me. Timmer. You'll learn the obvious, like Ted Cruz is a dick and a whole bunch of other right. stuff. There's really only two things you know you, you need for wisdom in life, which is whatever Bugs Bunny cartoons teach you and that Ted Cruz is a dick. <laughs> so, all right, and Trigby, where can we find you? You can find me at Trigby, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson, O-L-S-O-N, on Twitter. All right, gang, and as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Okay. As always, I want to thank you guys yeah. for joining me again. I think we'll probably do it again sometime as we get into September, maybe mid to late September. Give everybody an update on how we're Give me a shout out, Reed. Everybody out there, thank you for listening. Tell your friends, tell your family. Your Rate biggest five fan. Stars, follow us, and until next time, I already see you did. Soon. I'll do it again. If, yeah, on my other phone. Got a four out of five. Writing right now. Thanks again to everyone Five for listening. Star. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the Lincoln Project on yes, Apple Podcasts, podcast. Spotify, Google, or however you Should listen. Be. Don't Should, forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. Should be. And for Should more information awesome. on our to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution Should to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, okay, Twitter. including Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, Twitter. as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Seneca and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. Going on. For the Lincoln Project, 
Why you rejected Trump job offer recounts? Twitter. How come I can't get out how come I can't see Twitter Oh, Daily Beast. Like I said, Daily Beast has a has a podcast. 